0: On November 26th of 1731, William Cooper was born in Hertfordshire, England. He lived a rather simple life, though certainly not uneventful. He was known as one of the greatest poets of the early Romantic era. These days, he's probably best known for his hymnody. He wrote some beautiful and rapturing hymns, a lot of those were written during his time in John Newton's church when John Newton was his pastor in Olney in England, John Newton being the the man who wrote Amazing Grace, so there might have been some rub-off there why, why he um, wrote such wonderful hymns. A couple of his more well-known hymns today are There is a Fountain Filled with Blood and Go for a Closer Walk with God. If you haven't heard either of those, I'd encourage you to to check those out later today. Look up recordings wherever you listen to to music and and check those out. The lyrics are, are stunning in each of those hymns. But underneath the surface, Cooper struggled with intense inner turmoil And depression. He suffered many bouts of depression throughout his life. His mother died when he was six. And his father immediately shipped him off to boarding school. Which ended disastrously. He did end up studying at Westminster for his teenage years. He studied originally to practice law. But the first opportunity he got to put that study to practice Uh, came when he was asked to be a clerk for a member of the House of Lords. And it was required of him that there be a public examination of him before he took that post as as the clerk. And he was so terrified of this public examination that it sent him into the first of many terrible depressions and he tried to take his life three times. And he nearly did it the, the third time. He was put in an insane asylum for a time and lived the rest of his life as an invalid in a country town in England. He struggled with depression on and off throughout the rest of his life until he died in 1800. And even though he wrestled with these dark thoughts and... Doubts about his own salvation, his trust in the Lord never wavered. Listen to the words of one of the last hymns that he ever wrote God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds, of never-failing skill, He treasures up His bright designs and works His sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace behind a frowning providence. He hides a smiling face. These words have been an encouragement to so many throughout the years since it was written. And they were written as a reminder and an encouragement for William Cooper himself. A reminder that even in his depression, God is working. Well, today we are looking at Psalm 13. A psalm where David feels that frowning providence he is his suffering in this psalm and we never find out the cause but this suffering had led him to believe that God had abandoned him the trial seems too great for David to bear and he cries out to God for rescue that, that God would restore his favor on David and by the end of this short psalm David finds that the hard trial has driven him to a deeper trust in God's steadfast love. So let's read this psalm together now. This is Psalm 13 to the choir master. A psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love my heart shall rejoice in your salvation i will sing to the lord because he has dealt bountifully with me this is a psalm of lament in fact it is one of the classic psalms of lament the, the classic examples of a psalm of lament because of its short length, and it's generic terms. It's used as a template, as you will, for for lament psalms because it has all the aspects of a lament psalm even in such a short six verses. We don't know when David wrote this psalm. There's no indication of what was happening in his life, who this enemy is that he is so afraid of. And yet we see in this psalm a picture of how a man of God processes and responds to grief. Lament is a recognition that things are not as they should be. And it is a request to God that He would make all things right. In this psalm, David is desperate to feel God's presence again. He feels as though God's love is distant from Him. And He wants to be delivered from this dire situation, whatever it was. He comes out of this psalm with a deeper trust in God. So let's dive into this and look at at what what this psalm says. It breaks up nicely into three pairs of verses. So we're going to look at first two verses, second two verses, third two verses the first two verses, we see the problem. The problem. Four times in verses 1 and 2, we hear David cry out, How long? This is a cry in trouble. This is a cry in trouble from David. And it is a prolonged trouble. This is not something where he, he just fell into a serious situation. This is something that has been going on for a long period of time where David has not felt the presence or the favor of God for a long time. He doesn't think that God has any regard for him, nor has he. For a long time and he's afraid that that will continue even longer and that is why he cries out to God in trouble. This is an earnest cry from David. He genuinely desires to be back in the Lord's sight, back in the Lord's favor. David is described in the Bible as a man after God's own heart. And he wants to be as close to that heart as he possibly can. So he is earnestly crying out for God to hear him and to see him. This cry is, is an earnest cry. It is also a desperate cry. David is in real trouble. This is this is an actual problem. This isn't just some hypothetical generic thing that that David is suffering. This is an actual problem. He cannot find a way out of it apart from God, from God's help. And here's the beauty of this psalm and the fact that it talks in, that it is written in such general terms. Because we don't know any of the specifics about what was going on in David's life, it is easy for us to take our own troubles and be able to pray this same prayer with David. If you're in the midst of a, of a long, hard trouble and not knowing what the Lord is doing in it, you can pray this same prayer. You can bring these sorts of frustrations and complaints to God. So this is a great and real trouble, and it is from some unnamed enemy that has so overwhelmed David, this external foe has overwhelmed him to such a degree that he has spiraled down into an anxious agony internally. His external foe has turned into an internal enemy as well. He's overwhelmed by this situation. The beginning of verse 2 in the ESV, it says, How long must I take counsel in my soul? The NAS says pretty much the exact same thing. The Christian Standard Bible says, How long must I store up anxious concerns within me? So he is, David is, Racking his brain, trying to figure out how to escape this trouble. And all it is doing is making things worse because he can't find a solution. The NIV translates it this way. It says, how long must I wrestle with my thoughts? David is wrestling within himself, trying to figure out what to do. And it's just causing him to go into more and more of an anxious spiral thinking that God is not with him. He is anxiously trying to find a way out of this, and so he turns to God in desperation and cries out with these questions of how long. This is an earnest cry, a desperate cry. It's also a little impatient. He's calling out to God how long, and this is, ramping up his, his own desperation within himself. And it's also showing that he wants God to take care of this situation right now. Enough is enough. This has gone on long enough, God. When are you going to answer? When are you going to deliver me? He's not asking why. He's asking how long is this going to go on? How long are you going to let this happen to me? And We feel that, don't we? When we pray to God and make a request of Him, we want an immediate answer. We want that from each other. Think about this. When you send an important, time-sensitive message to someone, and it takes them even 10 minutes longer than you think necessary to respond to that message, text, email, whatever, whatever it is, do your hands start to get a little clammy. Start impulsively checking your phone, like, has he, has he responded? Has he, is he, he gonna, is he gonna say, it? where? Come on, I need this is due in five minutes. I need this right now. This is not based on anything in my life right now, not at all. That does not excuse this kind of behavior. Impatience is not something that we ought to celebrate. But in a fallen and sinful world like what we live in, we can relate to David and the fact that he is desperate and, and wants this taken care of as soon as possible because he is in real trouble. Now, before we move on to the rest of the psalm, I want to make sure and say this. Please, please do not think that God has actually left David. That is not the case. David feels as though God has abandoned him and has left him. But that is not actually what is going on. Perception does not always equal reality. And in this case, it absolutely does not equal reality. David took a little bit of poetic license here in expressing the fact that it it seems as though God has left him and hidden his face. He he understood that that was the case, that 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 was not the case, that God was still present, but his feelings are telling him otherwise. And it can feel today as though God has abandoned you, but he is there. Though you may not see it, He is still working out His sovereign will. Let's think back to the hymn that I referenced at the beginning here, uh, William Cooper's God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Verse 2 says, "...deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, He treasures up His bright designs and works His sovereign will." He's talking about mines, M-I-N-E-S. I was told after first service that it sounded like I said mines, as in like your mind. That's not the case. Mines as in like where you go mining for gold or oil or things things like that. that, is what, that that's the word that he's talking about here. A mine is a dark, damp, and dangerous place. But if you work in that, like the Lord is working in unfathomable mines like this, you will find great treasure. And God is working in these dark and dangerous trials as though they are these mines. And He is excavating the gold of genuine faith and trust within His people. He is working His sovereign will to bring about greater faith and trust in Him through these dark trials. Our God is no further away from the man struggling with depression, the woman being abused by her husband, the child who is being bullied on the playground, and any other of a whole host of circumstances that you could think of. He is no farther away from a person in their trial than He is anyone else on this earth. In fact, there is not one corner of creation that is outside of God's presence. He is everywhere. He is aware of everything. And if you feel the tension between The reality of God's presence and the perception of His absence? Welcome to lament. That is what lament expresses. Sin has marred God's creation. What once was perfect is now horribly tainted. Yet God is able to use this evil world to accomplish His sovereign will. God is continuing to glorify Himself and to work for your good in the midst of dark trials. The hardships in your life that make you feel as though God is far away are actually the things that God is using to draw you closer to Himself. Now, that doesn't make it easy to go through trials. They are called hardships for a reason. But hold on to that truth that God is drawing us closer to Himself through troubles because that's what we're going to see played out all the more through the rest of this psalm. So David has addressed the problem that he is, he is in danger He has cried out to God in his trouble. So now let's look at verses 3 and 4. The plea. The plea. If verses 1 and 2 were a cry in trouble, then these verses, verses 3 and 4, are a cry for help. They're a cry for help. A cry for rescue. David's prayer of lament in Psalm 13 turns from complaints in verses 1 and 2 to requests in verses 3 and 4. Now that he has addressed what is wrong in his world, what he sees that is going wrong, that is outside of God's character, now he pleads for God to make those things right. And I want to read a quote from uh, James Montgomery Boyce, he, he puts it well here, what's, what's going on in these two verses compared to, to what we've already seen in this psalm. This is what he says, David's feelings tell him that God has turned away from him, hiding his face. So, the first thing he asks God to do is turn around and look in his direction once again. His feelings tell him that God is no longer speaking to him and will never speak again. So, the second thing he asks God to do is to answer his questions. His feelings have told him that all is lost and that his enemy will triumph. No doubt meaning that his enemy will eventually succeed in killing him. So, he asks God to give light to his eyes. That is to preserve him and to restore him to full physical and mental health. So David feared that God had given up on him in some way, but he has not given up on God. He will continue, continue to make these requests to God, waiting for an answer. And the prayer in these two verses has a reorienting effect on David. David has admitted that he is inwardly focused, that he is wrestling with these anxious thoughts within himself. And he knows that his deliverance cannot come from inside himself, which is why he has cried out to God in the first place. He knows that. And now, having laid out his troubles, David makes his requests of God. These three specific requests. To consider, literally to look on Him. To answer Him. He's made all these questions and complaints and he wants a response from God. And and light up my eyes in, in the end of verse 3. That literally is, is talking about restoring life. He, he is afraid, David is afraid of his impending death if his enemies triumph over him. And he's also at the point where he, he's almost going to work himself into, into death because of his anxious concerns within him. So he's asking the God to restore life to him. He trusts that God can rescue him, and that's why he makes these requests of God. But David's requests are not just focused on himself. He is concerned about himself and his own preservation, but he is also concerned about God's glory in this. That's that's why he is concerned and bringing these requests to God himself. He's worried that if his enemies defeat him, then they they will have no regard for, for David's God. As I said before, David is described as a man after God's own heart. He's also the king of Israel, so this is pretty serious. If his enemies prevail over him, then Israel is in trouble. And also, because he is a man after God's own heart... If David is defeated and killed, then it will reflect poorly on God in the eyes of David's enemies. They will look at that and think, well, David's God wasn't powerful enough to save him. We don't have to pay attention to this God. Our gods are working out well enough for ourselves. We don't need, we don't need the Yahweh of Israel. So David is concerned for God's glory And so he appeals to God's glory while he's also appealing to his own preservation. And he waits for an answer from God. So here we see in the fact that he is making requests to God, David's faith, even though it is shaken, it has not faltered. The trial has driven David to God in prayer. So we've seen... David's problem, the fact that he is in trouble, we've seen his plea, and the fact that this prayer has a reorienting effect on him. And now we see the purpose. The purpose. This is verses 5 and 6. I don't know if you noticed it when we read through the psalm at the beginning, but David's mood between verses 4 and 5 has done a 180 degree turn. He's been in trouble and desperate, and then all of a sudden, he's rejoicing in salvation. He's moved from a cry in trouble to a cry for help, and now he is bursting out with a cry of trust. A cry of trust. He had been anxious in his trouble, but now he is resting in God's faithfulness. He had been powerless against his foes, so he turns to the one who has the power to save him. He had been afraid that his foes would rejoice over him if he was shaken, but now he is rejoicing in the deliverance that he is sure God is going to bring. And it's important to note here that there's no indication that anything has changed about David's situation. In fact, we can infer from this that his situation is exactly the same. The only thing that has changed and has completely flipped around is his attitude. Why? Why has his attitude changed even though his situation has not? Because David chose to trust in the steadfast love of the Lord. This is a key part of true biblical lament. Not staying within complaints and requests of God, but moving from complaint to, to confidence in God. And that turning from complaint to confidence is an act of the will. So that's why, it's why I said that David chose to trust in the love of the Lord. David is not simply putting on a facade, making it look like he's okay when he's still in debilitating, anxious turmoil. He is actually able to truly rejoice in the midst of this trial because he knows God's character. He knows that God is steadfast in love. That God describes Himself as a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He knows that about God. That has been His source of trust for all of his life up to this point. And he remembers God's faithfulness. He looks at what God has done in the past for him and also for the nation of Israel as a whole. And he trusts in God's faithfulness that he has not abandoned his people, not even once. So he trusts in the steadfast and everlasting love of God. And because of God's steadfast love, he can have confidence that God will deliver him even though he doesn't see how it's going to happen. And if we will trust in God's steadfast love today, that same level of confidence will be ours. We can have that same confidence if we trust in God's steadfast love. Do you know God's character? Have you seen from His Word that He is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love? This is literally how God describes Himself. Exodus 34 in verse, verses 6 and 7 is where God shows his glory to Moses and declares his name. And in declaring his name, this is how he describes himself. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And that same phrase that is God's description of himself is used throughout the rest of the Bible as a, re- as a repeat and a reminder that this is who our God is. Do you know that? If you know that, you can rest in that fact and trust in Him. Do you remember God's faithfulness to you? God has proved Himself trustworthy in the lives of His people people. The very fact that you are breathing today is a sign of God's faithfulness. The fact that you woke up, were able to get out of bed and come here for this service is an expression of God's mercy. Psalm 3.5 says that specifically. Psalm 3.5 says, I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. Is the Lord's work. If we think about that, the fact that God has given us every breath, that each new day is a mercy from Him. I mean, goodness gracious, we sang about that earlier. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. We each could have a whole library full of God's faithfulness in our own lives. Just our own personal accounts of how God has been faithful to us. we We could keep a log of that just in the fact of every breath being an expression of God's mercy and His love to us. You know? Breath number 7 trillion, 13 quintillion, things like that. But... Beyond just our own personal accounts of God's faithfulness, we also have this grand account of His faithfulness throughout all of time itself. From the beginning of time, which He created. In the Old Testament, the word that is translated here, steadfast love, or unfailing love, is the word Chesed, it's a real great Hebrew word. You have to sound sound like you're hacking up a lung as you're saying it. Chesed, it means steadfast, immovable. It is deep and abiding love that God has for His people. It describes God's character and and it shows the heart behind God's work in His creation. It's found throughout the Old Testament, hundreds and hundreds of times. So I want to look at just a few examples. Time's getting away from us a little bit here. But I want to look at a few examples of God's chesed, his steadfast love to his people. The first is Genesis 39. Genesis 39 is in the middle of the story of Joseph. Joseph is locked away in a prison for something that he did not do, but he is still in the steadfast love of the Lord. It specifically says that the steadfast love of the Lord did not leave Joseph while he was in prison. And we see how that is worked out later on in the book of Genesis in the fact that Joseph, I, I, I almost want to say David. It's not David. Joseph. Joseph was taken out of prison and made the second in command in Egypt. He saved Egypt from starving in a famine. And because of that, he also brought his family from Canaan into Egypt so that they would not die because of the famine. They would not starve. So God is preserving his people and he used Joseph in that. So we've, so let's, we've looked at Israel coming into Egypt. Let's look at, at Israel coming out of Egypt. Exodus 15. This is after the Israelites have crossed through the Red Sea on dry land And God has swallowed up Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. They have all drowned. And God has saved His people from their enemies. And He has brought them out of slavery. And the Israelites praise God for His steadfast love. Exodus chapter 15 is a whole song dedicated to the Lord, rejoicing in the fact that they are free from their slavery in Egypt. Moving ahead in Israel's history, 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7, this is God's establishing His covenant with King David. This very same King David who wrote Psalm 13. And He promises to David that His chesed, His steadfast love, will remain on David's descendants. He promises that. That's seen in the fact that David's descendants remain on the throne of Israel. And when Israel and Judah split up, David's descendants remain the rulers and the kings of the nation of Judah. And we see that played out even farther to the fact that Jesus Christ comes from the line of David. That is showing his steadfast love to David. Second Chronicles 20, this is another uh, situation perhaps similar to what David is facing in Psalm 13. Again, we don't know. In 2 Chronicles 20, Judah is under attack. There are three other nations that are seeking to attack and destroy Judah and Jerusalem. And King Jehoshaphat prays to God for deliverance, that that He would save Israel from their enemies. And before they go out to battle... The army of Judah praises the Lord. They sing a song of praise to God for His steadfast love, remembering His faithfulness to them in the past. And if you read on in 2 Chronicles 20, God wipes out all three opposing armies. There was infighting in between those those three armies before they even got to their battle with Judah. And so they demolished themselves before the battle even started. This is, this is God delivering His people without His people doing a thing. This is God showing His steadfast love to His people. And even after Israel and Judah had completely abandoned God, had taken to worshiping idols, and God had to... Send them into exile and captivity as a punishment for their sin. Even in that, God's steadfast love did not depart from His people. We see this in the book of Lamentations. This is a whole book of lament within the Old Testament. Lamentations was written by Jeremiah at the time when Jerusalem is being destroyed and the Jews are being taken into captivity in the Babylonian Empire. All hope is lost and Jeremiah is despondent. It's the best word for it. He is, he is in utter grief. And as he watches Jerusalem being destroyed and the Jews being taken captive, he still... Can say this in Lamentations 3 that this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, His mercies never come to an end. This is written as Jerusalem is burning. He writes this. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Even in the darkest moment in Judah's history, and Jeremiah is weeping over this, he still can trust in the faithfulness and the steadfast love of God. And he's right to feel this way. We see as as we read on in Israel's history that the Jews were allowed to return to their homeland. Just as God promised. He promised that they would be 70 years in captivity and then they would return. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah show that return of the Jewish exiles to their homeland as they rebuild the city of Jerusalem. They rebuild the temple, the wall around Jerusalem. We see God's faithfulness to His people in that they are able to be brought back into their land. And in in the book of Ezra, chapter 7, in the middle of that chapter, Ezra... Bursts out in praise to God for his steadfast love. Seeing the specific ways in which God is orchestrating for the Jews to return. If you read through the book of Ezra, it's remarkable how the Lord works to bring the Jews back into the nation. And how they're able to rebuild from that. Now, this is just the Old Testament. These are just examples from before Christ. Before the New Testament. We haven't even gotten to the supreme example. The ultimate expression of God's love is found at the cross. It's found in the sacrifice of Christ. The fact that Jesus Christ paid the debt that our sin owed. That is the ultimate expression of God's love for His people. There are a number of places that we could go to in the New Testament that describe this. I want to just read this one from Romans 5. Romans 5 verses 6-8. through 8. died for us. Well, we were sinners. We didn't deserve any of this. We deserve the opposite. We don't deserve His love. We deserve His wrath. And yet God in His love and mercy gave His Son to die in our place. This is is steadfast love. Here is love that we can put our hope in, that we can rejoice in with David. We can sing about this. We can sing songs like, Here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood, when the Prince of life, our ransom shed for us His precious blood. Who His love will not remember? Who can cease to sing His praise? He can never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal days. We sang a song this morning about, about this. In Christ, the sure, the steady anchor. Th- through the floods of unbelief, Hopeless somehow. Oh, my soul, now lift your eyes to Calvary. This is my ballast of assurance. See God's love forever proved. And then the refrain, I will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. This is God's steadfast love that we can hold on to forever. Our God is faithful. His love is sure. It always has been. And it always will be. If you would choose to trust in Him in the middle of your trouble, you can have confidence that God is drawing you closer to Him through these troubles. Hard trials should draw us into a deeper trust in God's steadfast love. We live in the land of the already but not yet. And by that I mean that Christ's death has accomplished salvation and he has defeated the power of sin and death. That has already happened. But we are still waiting for the day when our ultimate deliverance from the bondage of sin and the presence of sin is realized when He returns to establish His reign over the earth. His perfect reign over the earth. And even though we wait for the day when Christ will return and will deliver us from sin and evil. We can trust in Him because of what He has done in the past. The fact that He is faithful. That all that He promises to do, He will do. We can look to that and we can have confidence for the future. Even in the midst of trials and troubles. We can say with David in verse 6, I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. I love that word, bountifully. Again, we talked about we we don't deserve any measure of God's love and yet He has given us an overabundance far beyond what we deserve. So we can say along with David that He has dealt bountifully with us. Now, in God's smiling providence, He orchestrated it that... that we read the end of John 6 before the sermon this morning I'd like for you to turn back to that passage now We'll close with this John 6 We're looking specifically right now at verses 66 through 69 So as we as we read as, as Ryan gave uh, a recap of the chapter, up to the point that we read today, and, and as he read through this, we saw that Jesus has provided miraculously for this crowd of thousands of people, and they 're looking to him because they want more of that flash, that pizzazz of 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 miracles they they 're excited about the the things that they can get now f- from Jesus. They want to make him king for that reason. And Jesus is trying to show them that he is offering far better blessings than bread. This is the reason he came that they may have eternal life. This is a far greater blessing than what they were looking for. But they didn't want to hear that. The crowd and and even a number of His disciples who had been following him through his ministry leave him at this point. This is one of the probably one of the darker points in in Jesus' ministry. So starting in verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter's statement here in verses 68 and 69 have been described as a cry of loyal despair. Peter is saying, "Where, where else are we going to turn? There's two aspects of this. If you read in, in the other Gospels, at one point Peter says, Listen, look, we've left everything to follow you. We have no backup plan. We have nothing to fall back on. But at the same time, not only is he saying that, but Peter is also saying, what else is there? We know that you have the words of eternal life. There's no hope of eternal life anywhere except for you. So we choose to stay with you. He's speaking for the 12. Peter showed his trust in Jesus in this moment. Not perfectly. You don't have to read much farther into the Gospels to see that Peter's faith does falter in certain ways. But he knows that there is no other place where He can find true salvation. And that is the same for us. Our salvation, our deliverance is only found in God through the work of Jesus Christ because of His steadfast love for us. May we remember that this week. May we cling to that fact. May we trust in His love As we endure trials, knowing that they are bringing us closer to Himself. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your love. Your love that is unfailing, even though our world is full of sin and evil. We recognize, Father, that this world is not as it ought to be. We understand that our sin has tainted your perfect creation. But we praise you that that has not destroyed your faithfulness. Your steadfast love endures forever, O Lord. Pray that we would hold on to that, that we would trust in that as Your people, that You would draw us closer to Yourself because of Your steadfast love. Father, there are many here who are going through trials that I can't even imagine. Things that have been going on for a long, long time. Pray that this psalm would be a reminder and encouragement to them that they can trust in your steadfast love throughout all trials, that we can count it all joy when we face trials of various kinds because we know that your love is guiding us through that so that we may have a deeper trust in you and in your love. Pray that you would make us aware of that more and more as we go out this this morning. Pray that we would remember that as we take communion together this morning, remembering the ultimate expression of your love shown in the sacrifice of your Son. Father, may you be glorified in us as we trust in your steadfast love. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen.